Orale. Bienvenidos and welcome to the Familia FFP podcast. I am your host, Jorge Martin, and Familia, we are on YouTube. Please, 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 por favor, give us a like and subscribe. We really appreciate it. I mean, it's, we, our numbers are growing. This NFL Insider Series is muy caliente, and people are coming on and watching the show. And, you know, we've got a great invitado de lujo that we're going to, I'm going to introduce in a second. But first, I want to make sure when you go to fantasypoints.com, make sure you put in the promo code FAMILIA22, FAMILIA22, we'll get you 10% off. You're going to get some of the best and fantasy football content from the greats like like Graham Barfield, John Hansen, Joe Dolan, Scott Bra Scott Barrett, Tom Brawley, Wes Huber. I mean some of the greatest, greatest fantasy football minds are coming together. Right now uh, fantasy points is in the middle of 32 days. 32 articles, 32 podcasts, all leading up to training camp. We're doing the same thing here on Familia FFB, making sure you're getting getting the, the best of the best, that inside information to get you ready for your fantasy football seasons because it's coming up. The season's coming up, Familia. And I got to tell you, I'm so pumped up about our invitado de lujo for today. I mean, you know what? You can't say Denver sports without saying this man's name, Troy Rink. I mean, I tell you, he's with Denver 7. He's got the Broncos. Goes by podcast. I mean, you know, he's covered multiple multiple Super Bowls for the for Denver. He's he's done magical runs with the Colorado Rockies. They just finished off uh, the Colorado Avalanche, just hoisting the cup. I tell you, I mean, he is the man when it comes to Denver sports, but especially when it comes to the Broncos, he covers them year round. We're gonna look for that inside knowledge, and I'm also gonna ask him that pressing question if he's ever seen Rocky Mountain oysters turned into tacos. So I, I we, we, we're going to find this out at the end, but, uh, and as well as, as well as some other, as we always talk about Mexican food takes. Troy, bienvenido. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Jorge. I appreciate it. Love the, the work that you guys do out in SoCal. Uh, it's been fantastic to be part of other people's podcasts and it's part of the NFL network. I love, man. It's kind of a small family. So thank you for having me on. Oh no, this this is fantastic, and and you know what I I love, you've been so ingrained in in the Broncos, but you also got to jump into the late run with the Colorado Avalanche, and I just I'd love to see if you could kind of give us a flavor, a little sabor of the 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 Stanley Cup run and kind of like the excitement in the city of Denver because. Uh, I know the Dodgers are glad it's over because they're tra traveling there this week and <laughs> they don't they don't want to have it have it go too nuts. But how was how has it been? Yeah, it's an interesting history with the Avalanche because they arrived in '96 in their first year in Denver. They won a cup, and those remember they had the Colorado Rockies in Colorado as the professional hockey team that eventually became the New Jersey Devils. But there hadn't been hockey in Colorado for roughly 14, 15 years, and so while the Cup experience in '96 was great, people barely knew the players. You know, it wasn't a hockey city because it had been absent for so long. And you really didn't know what you're watching. And I ended up covering that Avalanche team the year after they won it, the blood feud with the Red Wings. But in 97, 98, I covered every Avalanche home game and, you know, watching Forsberg and Sackick and Wah and Foot, And then it, so they win it again in 2001. There's more of an appreciation for it because now it had been here longer. And knowing that this is a Broncos state, a Broncos region, there's a reason they call it Broncos country. But this one was different, Jorge, because of the fact it was 21 years in between titles. And so you have kids now who've grown up with the avalanche. It becomes generational. It's like when I you go cover baseball and I go to Pittsburgh, or I go to Boston, or I go to New York or even L.A., 
it's passed on from generations. Well, that is now starting to happen with the avalanche. So you see fathers taking their sons and there's a different appreciation for what just happened uh, last night. And I would say also it's become a more of a younger crowd. It became a hip thing to do. The, the environment created at Ball Arena, it assaults the senses. It's loud. It's boisterous. It's knowledgeable fans. And let's be honest, they are one of the best teams in the last two, three decades. Their ability to skate, their ability to score. They won 56 games in the regular season, 16-4 and four in the postseason, so 72 wins. Uh, you have McKinnon. You have Kale McCarr. So they're an exciting team to watch. Even if you're a cursory fan, they're easy to embrace because they're a fun watch. I mean, I would equate it to like the Golden State Warriors. That's mm. how they are to watch. If you're not, you don't love basketball, but you love watching Steph Curry and the Warriors. That's how this Avalanche team, they captivated a city and a state and people are going crazy. And the celebrations last night, luckily were safe. The game being on the road in Tampa Bay helped tremendously, but I would rank it third in terms of sports championships in Colorado history. The Broncos beating the Packers in Super Bowl 32 will always be one. No argument. End of story. John Elway wins his first Super Bowl. That is the game. Then they repeat the next year and beat the Falcons in Super Bowl 33. That was a dominant team, one of the best teams in NFL history. I mean, you could argue that team's probably a top 10 team. I would put this Avalanche team third in that regard because the 2001 team, they had – Blake and certainly Ray Bork, but they they acquired them. This is a little bit has a more of a homegrown feel to it. And again, it's 21 years between titles, so it's sabered differently. So it's been a special time. Um, a lot of appreciation. It's a very easy team to like and embrace uh, by the fan base, uh, their coach, from their players, their selflessness. So it's been a fun time. And I only covered you know two or three games. I was just a small part of our coverage. Most of my coverage is frankly on social media. I like hockey because I covered it. Uh, but you know, in my in my DNA, I'm a baseball guy and a football guy, but it's been an exciting time. Uh, you you touched my heart talking about you know baseball and football. Uh, especially baseball is the first love for me. Uh, football is uh, definitely definitely a very close second. Uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the John Elway years. Uh, just a quick little information about Familia Fippi. My, where I live is about 10 minutes from John Elway's uh, high school, Granada Hills High School. So right. small world, small world. He, I remember him, you know, I was a little, I was a little kid uh, reading about him on, uh, you know, Friday, Friday Night Lights and just uh, still local writers say he's still the greatest football player they've ever seen who were, who've covered over that period of time. So uh, yeah, John Elway's still a legend out here in SoCal. So I, um, I you know, you talked about the excitement. The, I, I, you know, can you talk about the excitement of you've you've got the new quarterback in Russell Wilson? That's a new ownership. You've talked about the fact that it's it's one of the few teams that changed the owner, co coach, head coach, and and quarterback in the same offseason. How is the 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 excitement and kind of like if you could give me a little bit of an idea on the direction that Nathaniel Hackett's taking this team from an offensive standpoint? That's gonna so important to fantasy. Yeah, like you said, it's just been a dramatic jarring shift of change for this team and necessary frankly, but they're only the third team in the last two decades to have a, you know, ownership, quarterback, coach change in the same offseason. To say it's been a, a busy offseason would be an understatement, but it started with Russell Wilson. The acquisition of Russell Wilson lifted the veil of darkness. I mean, it has been so bad here since Peyton Manning retired. 11 starting quarterbacks since Peyton 
Two have a winning record. Brett Rippon at 1-0. He beat the Jets on a Thursday night game. And Trevor Simeon at 13-11. and The rest has just been a parade of clumsiness and coaches and coordinators. That's been part of the problem. I was asked today on radio, how, what do you think the Broncos would learn from the Avalanche? And it's like consistency, patience, and selflessness, playing for something bigger than yourself, playing for the guy next to you. But part of the issue with the Broncos – they went through Gary Kubiak left because of health reasons, Vance Joseph, Vic Fangio, and now you have Nathaniel Hackett, 11 quarterbacks during that time. They'll be on their sixth uh, offensive coordinator. So when Russell Wilson starts, Jorge, he'll be their 12th starter since Manning. So getting someone of Russell Wilson's caliber, it's hard to articulate how excited and optimistic the fan base is because he's 33, he's in his prime, he's a nine-time pro bowler. I mean, I, I think – this guy's going to manipulate more numbers than Marty Bird from Ozarks. He's going to put up a huge season. I think 35 touchdowns and eight picks, like four to one. The Broncos were praying. They have delusions of adequacy, hoping for two to one touchdown to pick ratio, which explains why they're, you know, their offense, they were bad and boring. So you put Wilson in immediately. It's like there's hope. Hope has returned. And Nathaniel Hackett, I didn't know a lot about him, I'll be honest. I mean, I know who he was because of his dad, Paul Hackett, at USC and coached in the NFL forever. Nathaniel Hackett is caffeinated. He has energy for days, and he is the juxtaposition to Vic Fangio. I like Vic, but Vic was a professor. He was old school in the way, hey, here's there's the whiteboard. I'm going to teach it. You learn it. End of, question, end of story. Nathaniel Hackett has embraced the YouTube generation. He has someone on his staff, a former teacher, who helps him create presentations to make them interactive for players. They do Kahoot. This is a game like they play in elementary and middle school, a trivia game that challenges players. They do basketball contests. Everything is learning disguise, is competition disguised as learning. And that is help. And it's really changed the culture in the building. And then you throw into the fact they now have the richest owner in the NFL in Rob Walton. He's worth, depending on the day, between 55 and 70 billion. You could take like the next three owners in the NFL and they wouldn't total his income or his net worth. Greg and Kerry Penner will likely be running it day to day, but they've needed that. They were a bit rudderless, especially starting in the COVID year down. The lack of leadership was obvious. George Payton, who is a SoCal guy near where you would have grown up, I think it's uh, near Granada Hills, over there in SoCal, but mm -hmm. he is a UCL, UCLA guy. He helped provide direction last year, but they needed someone at the top to say, this isn't acceptable. Like this isn't because your GM can't run the organization. At some point, you need an owner, and they had a Hall of Fame owner in Pat Bolin who established excellence, excellence. And the thing was crazy about Pat, he was around every day. He was in the trainer's room. He was on the practice field. He did the weekly football pool with the players. But he didn't meddle. He hired the guys and demanded excellence and then said, if you don't get it, you're fired. But he didn't meddle. They've lacked that. And you could feel his presence when he was the owner. They did not have that. So now you have a new owner that would probably be official, certainly probably before training camp, New quarterback, new coach. So it's a change in culture with the energy and a young coaching staff. I would compare it to your audience. It's very similar to what the Rams are doing with Sean McVay. Mm. Young, energetic, leaning into technology, leaning into innovation, leaning into relationships as the basis of coaching. Now you have a star quarterback who's won a Super Bowl and been to two, and you have an owner now with deep pockets. So to say the Broncos country is optimistic, I mean, they're just bubbling. 
bubbling with excitement really for the first time since Peyton Manning retired. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned kind of like the connection with McVeigh, you know, kind of like what's going on in with the Rams and McVeigh to what the Broncos are doing with Hackett. They're both under the same coaching tree, under that Shanahan coaching tree, which really emphasizes the run. Also, you know, the controlled kind of like West Coast passing game. This is for Russ. You mentioned 35 touchdowns and eight and eight interceptions as, as a prediction, which I think is solid because that's what he did when he was in Denver, when he was in Seattle. Looking in, in kind of into the into the this season with Russ in in that new offense, do you see him just kind of like seamlessly, almost seamlessly going into uh, the fitting in the way Aaron Rodgers eventually did? Because these guys are on that echelon of the best of the best. Yeah, the curious thing about it is Aaron Rodgers under Nathaniel Hackett got better. He got rid of the ball more quickly. He became even more accurate than he was. I mean, he's back-to-back MVP with the help of Nate Hackett's coaching, and he will say that. This isn't me trying to connect dots. I mean, Rodgers said that he was probably his favorite coach ever in the way he worked with him and challenged him. And that relationship with Russ has been microwaved already because of the passion they both share. Russell Wilson is like a shark, no wasted movement. He has a cubicle and office in the facility. He, his favorite habit, he says, is to beat the sunrise every day. So he and Hackett are kindred spirits that way, number one. Secondly, the key will be, will Russ, because the, the whole thing in Seattle was let Russ cook. But it reminded me of the last couple of years of John Elway under Dan Reeves. We're going to play ugly football for three quarters in the fourth quarter. John, go win it. And it looked like that's what they were trying to do with Russ at times this last couple of years. And so can they find the balance with Russell Wilson on two things in terms of him elevating to where he's in like the MVP conversation, Jorge? And that would be, will he resist the temptation to go for the deep ball when he knows he's got a blitz coming from the backside? Like you'd see him do in Seattle. He'd get up to the line. He knew they were coming after him, but it was like, I'm going to hold on to it because Lockett might break free. And he, I don't think he's going to need to do that in Denver because of the way they're going to run the football. So can at times take the layup, not all the time, but as he learns to take the layups in this offense to set up the play action, that's when we'll see full Russ Wilson in this offense because he's had a tendency to feel like he has to go win it and not play hero ball as much as but take deep shots. The deep shots are going to be here in this offense, but they're going to be set up by the run game. Seattle's run game was inconsistent. Ever since Marshawn Lynch left, it's been wildly inconsistent. Fantasy league owners can attest to that. So that will be the key. Russell Wilson, we know, can win football games by playing the way he used to play. But in this offense, if he allows himself to be patient for the run game to establish, he is going to have a year that's off the charts because when he does go for the deep strike, they're going to be wide open. And when he does start getting the ball out a little more quickly – He's going to realize he doesn't have to run off script and and color outside the lines as much. And that's the thing. You look at his sack totals. He's been sacked like 450 times in his career, 40 plus times almost every year. He's 33 now. I mean, if if I'm the Broncos, I want that number coming down to about 30. I don't want it in the high 40s because it only takes one hit and the Broncos are right back to the despair in the valley they've been in for six years. So the offense, I believe I've seen it in the offseason at OTAs, Jorge. They're blending the the Russell Wilson mind. This is the first time he's ever played for an offensive head coach, ever. They're blending his desires and his whims and his wishes with Nathaniel Hackett's offense, which is 
West Coast outside zone run scheme to create chunk plays to set up play action. So it should work, and it should work really well. Until we get to it pads on, we don't know, but I will be shocked if they don't score 25 points a game. Ooh, that be that, that would just be so spicy, especially in the AFC West. The AFC West, which is just the the it's for me for my money best best division in football. You talked about the importance of the running game. Fantasy owners for a couple months there were just beyond crazy. They were loco like loco en la cabeza. They were they, they were saying <laughs> Javante Williams was going to be the number two running back after Jonathan Taylor. Everybody was so excited. Then Melvin Gordon took the air out of the balloon and 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 resigned, but. You know this—that's this offense. I mean, you—you you, you look at both AJ Dillon and and Aaron Jones were very were very productive in this offense. How do you see the the? Do you see kind of like a fifty fifty, which was literally a fifty fifty yeah. split last year? Uh, do do you see it creeping up toward Williams or another fifty fifty split this year for touches? I'm, I'm talking about not just carries but also total touches. Yeah. Or the, the reality is there's no way it's going to be what it was last year. They both had 203 carries. Like yeah. You couldn't make that up. And they were both wildly productive. I mean, Melvin had more touchdowns. And then Melvin Gordon, the one thing you say about it, he does not need Siri to find the end zone. This guy has had 20 touchdowns in two years with the Broncos. Now, he's had some fumbles that have pissed fans off. I understand that. But he can find the end zone, and he's good on third down. Together, they were 1,800 yards and 17 touchdowns. But it's not going to be 50-50. If I had to guess, and Melvin Gordon has said, he's told me and he's said it in press conferences, he's not going to just lay down. He's not going to give the job to Javante Williams. Everyone's like, well, that's going to create friction. No, they like each other. Javante Williams is a man of faith, very mellow, very low-key. He's the actual just complete juxtaposition of who he is on the football field. He's reading the Bible before games. He is that guy. Gordon and him complement each other well. He appreciates and respects Melvin. So there's no problem with the relationship. Um, but to me, I see it happening where one guy start like, so when I covered Super Bowl uh, 50 team, 2015, CJ, Ronnie Hillman started every game and CJ Anderson finished every game. So I could see it being something like that, Jorge, where you have uh, Javante Williams starts and maybe Melvin Gordon gets hot and maybe he gets more touches or Gordon starts against certain teams because they trust him a tick more in pass protection. And then Javante Williams gets hot and finishes. But if I had to guess, Javante Williams is probably going to get 60% of the touches to more like 40 for Melvin. But the key is you can use both these guys on third down and out of the backfield in the passing game. So they still should complement each other well. Uh, and I'm, I'm always of the one. Why would a team that scores 17 points a game at home last year, 19 points overall. Why would we be getting rid of good players? I know it doesn't help your fantasy team, but the reality is the Broncos can use Melvin Gordon, just like the Cowboys use Pollard and Zeke Elliott. It's not a bad thing to have two good players. It's a bad thing for your fantasy league team. If Javante gets 60 yards on a drive and then Melvin Gordon gets the touchdown, I understand that. But the Broncos haven't been to the playoffs in six years. They can't worry about fantasy. They got to worry about reality. And the reality is they're better with both these backs. And I do think Javante will get a little more of the carries this year. And together they will work. As you said, Dylan and Jones work well together. I see something very similar. And remember, Hackett wanted Melvin Gordon back. The GM, George Payton, wanted Melvin Gordon back. So don't think they're just like, oh, they brought him back as some kind of sympathy plea. They wanted him back. He settled for way less money. But this was a plan that Hackett believes you need two backs to, for this offense to reach its potential. 
And that's the thing. And, and, and AJ Dillon won people some championships and, and, and it's just, there's players that are, that are going to be, be, these players are going to be helpful. Where Melvin Gordon is going in drafts, I think is going to be a scream. Even at forty percent of, of the touches, I think he's I think he's an extreme value where where he's going in drafts. And I'll have an article on this uh, afterward. I, now that just warmed us up because I want to look in the I, w- I want you to look in the crystal ball and the receivers. And it's the two guys that have been the great debate in the fantasy community. It's Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy. I think they're both going to be uh, very successful. I mean, you look at the fact that DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett were both over a thousand yard receivers uh, with Russell Wilson, uh, with you know Russell Wilson playing an entire season. Can you? I, I know you've talked about it a little bit on your uh, on your podcast. I'd love to see if you could share a little bit on, on kind of how you see each each one of them kind of shaking out this season. Yeah, this is the season for Jerry Judy. I've been bullish on Judy since they drafted him in 2020, and now I'm starting to feel like Gilligan on this island here. I mean, because it's just he's got to do it. He's at a crossroads. Last year, the one there's a stat that it still boggles my mind. If you'd have told me before the season. Jerry Judy had zero touchdowns and Bradley Chubb had zero sacks. Wait, what? And Jerry Judy had three red zone targets under punt Shermer. I mean, their offense, they used him as a decoy on this stupid jet sweep that was right out of a middle school offense. He would fake like he's getting the snap after he'd already passed the center. I mean, and he was demoralized. His body language wasn't great. I'm not going to defend that, but they didn't throw to him. In 10 games, three red zone targets. I mean, come on, what are we doing? So, but to be fair, he's got to step up now. There's no excuses. He's got Russell Wilson and he's got Nate Hackett, who just like wakes up out of bed and starts drawing up routes for receivers. They everything's set up for him. He had a brush with the law this offseason where he got cleared. He, there should be no suspension. He, he should be humbled by that. He feels like it. I just talked to him yesterday at his football camp. He is poised for a big season. He understands the stakes involved. He understands the expectations now. So what does that mean from a fantasy perspective? Well, again, I've said this forever. Jerry Judy is better in space than NASA. Get him the ball. Let him go to work. He can do this. They had issues because Teddy Bridgewater, he they developed chemistry, then Jerry got hurt and missed seven games, and then it never really developed after that. Russell Wilson will stick with Jerry Judy. He doesn't have to be open by three, you know, three yards, four yards. He'll get it to him and let him go to work. So the way I see it, Jorge, this is my prediction. Only once in Russell Wilson's career in Seattle did two receivers in the same season have 1,000 yards. So this idea they're both going to have like 1,500 yards, he and Cortland Sutton, that's just – history doesn't say that. I know it's not the same offense, but history doesn't say that. So my belief is Judy is going to have – and I I do think they both can get 1,000, but it's not going to be the numbers people keep thinking. I think Judy can lead them in yards – around 1,200 to 1,250 with six touchdowns, and Sutton is going to be right over 1,000, and he's going to have 10 touchdowns. He's going to be more of the guy in the red zone in terms of the 50-50 balls, and Judy is going to be more in the yardage. So he'd have the game that's like five catches, 84 yards, one touchdown every other game or every third game, where Sutton, I think, will more consistently find the end zone because of the mismatch because he's basically he's open when covered, and Russ will learn to trust that around the goal line. But that's my prediction is that Judy leads them in yards and Sutton leads them in touchdowns. Now, is there going to be anything left over for like Tim Patrick and uh, KJ Hamler, KJ Hamler, who's still rehabbing a a knee injury, a knee surgery? Yeah, well, Tim Patrick is as reliable as an old pickup truck. I mean, he's been their best receiver the last two years, clearly the most consistent, right around 
averaging 750, 800 yards, five touchdowns. That's who he is. I could see him getting similar numbers to that. I don't know that, I mean, someone asking him to get more than that, there would, I mean, almost have to be an injury, which you'd never want. I hate injuries. But I think Tim Patrick, if you're, especially for fantasy value, you have to understand, look at his last two years. He could probably be around that, somewhere between 700 and 900 yards, four to five touchdowns. Because the problem is he and Sutton are very similar receivers. So they're just naturally going to take away almost like Javante and Melvin. And unless one guy just gets crazy hot, they're just going to kind of split numbers up. But I think Sutton, the difference is he could have more touchdowns with fewer catches where Patrick, they haven't used him that way. Like where Sutton should be used that way around the goal line, but there should be enough. KJ Hamler, I think he's going to start the training camp on the pup list. He's coming back from a dislocated hip and a torn ACL. It's the second time he's torn the ACL and that knee. Um, talking, I talked with KJ yesterday at Jerry Judy's camp. You know, he's progressing. But remember, he had the surgery like in October. So for me, realistically, if you're a fantasy league owner, I wouldn't be counting on Hamler to be putting up numbers until probably closer to the end of the first month of the season or early October, just conservative. Maybe it's earlier than that. He looks great, but I just don't know if he misses a chunk of training camp, the idea he's going to come in and be a real productive receiver those first two, three weeks. Typically in the NFL, that doesn't happen for a guy who hasn't proven it yet. So you have to think with K.J. Hamler, if you're a fantasy owner, it's almost like you have somebody on a buy or you're looking for like that X factor who could have two catches, 72 yards, 150-yard touchdown. He's not going to get the volume right away. It's just the way the offense is. And you already have Albert Okawebunam and Greg Dolchich, the kid from UCLA. They're not all going to eat. It's a lot of mouths to feed. And they're going to run the ball still. So for me, if you're betting on Hamler from Fantasy League, you're literally, it's like, you know, playing uh, almost like you're playing roulette. You're just like that one number that's going to give you one catch, 52 yards, or three yeah. catches, 80 yards. He's not going to get the volume, but he could have that one play that flips you over the top and great kid. I really am rooting for him to be healthy. They need his energy. They need his speed. He can take the top off as they say, but early in the season, I would be cautiously optimistic and conservative in your view of Hamler, just because he's still, it would not be a year removed from knee surgery. And that I would say realistically start feeling like he's going to contribute more regularly in early October. Now you, you mentioned Alberto, who I'm still struggling with how to say his last name, but uh, him Oku and Oku uh, him, and maybe I should try and say his name in Spanish, so maybe that will help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and Greg Dulcich, who I know you've you've gotten you're you're a little bullish on him. Yeah. Is uh, e either I mean I think tight ends sometimes they take a while, so uh, could it be more? Uh, more the the tight end targets, which Russ has never been a big guy for tight ends, but maybe he hasn't had this kind of uh, talent at the tight end position. Uh, Jimmy Gra Jimmy Graham, latter part of his career, uh, but can is there going to be enough any anything for the tight ends uh, after all the other guys are eaten? There, the way I see it, because you look at Green Bay, their tight end production the last few years has been among the best in football including from some no-name guys, like guys who pop out of nowhere. So the tight end is part of this offense. As you mentioned, it hasn't really necessarily been part of Russell Wilson and his stats other than that brief overlap with Jimmy Graham. Albert O, not unlike K.J. Hamler, there's going to be games where he's a mismatch, where he has the four catches, 82 yards, and a touchdown on a seam route. But he might have games where he has one catch and eight yards. 
based on matchups. It's not like they're going to, it's not like he's Kelsey or a tight end, like uh, the kid from, I can't escape from the Ravens, their tight end. That's so amazing. Oh, Andrews. Or, yeah. Or the, the Raiders tight end. I mean, those guys, mm-hmm. they're part, they're the focal point of their offenses. Waller, uh, Andrews and Kelsey. Albert O is going to be more based on game to game, week to week. Is there a mismatch to exploit? So from a fantasy league perspective, it could be a little frustrating. I understand that. But and Dolchich, I thought he was going to compete for the starting job right away. He had an injury in OTAs that limited him. I think it was his hamstring. They're always so coy with injuries. It was a leg injury. And he'll be fine for camp. But my guess is they start the season. They'll have Eric Tomlinson as their blocking tight end, and they have Albert Okuwebunam as the starter. And the way they run that Hackett offense, not unlike Shanahan, not unlike Matt LaFleur, they need every play to look the same. That is the key to that West Coast offense. So double tie in, they could be running heavy, they could be running zone, they could be running inside, or they could use both those tight ends as receivers. That's what they need to get to, is to a point where Albert O is a functional blocker. So when he's in the game, it's not a tell. Like, oh, he's in. Because they don't want to use him as a flex guy like a Jimmy Graham. They want to use him in line at times to disguise their run plays. So can he do that? And if he struggles with that, as he he struggled with blocking last year, is that where Dolchich finds a way? Because Dolchich is a willing blocker. Is he a good blocker at the NFL level? I don't know yet. I don't know. But Dolchich is going to get a little time. They like him. But it's Albert Okuwebunam's job to win. And if you're a fantasy owner, the games you look for is where you think teams are going to stay matched up with him on a linebacker on seams. That's where they'll try to exploit matchups is there's going to be certain games where like, you know, he could get and have three to four catches, 72 yards and a touchdown because he's so fast. I mean, he's legit four, 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 five tight end, but we just haven't seen it with any consistency because of injuries, playing time, whatever. This is his opportunity with Noah Fant gone to start putting up consistent numbers and just showing he's an NFL starter to where he can block and be trusted. And when that happens, you'll see his offensive numbers start to blossom. He just hasn't put it all together. He certainly has the talent to, and he's healthy now. You've talked about the importance of the offensive line, and I'm, I'm really big on the how important the offensive line is to, uh, to fantasy points being scored. Russ obviously talked about the problems that he had getting protected. Is this group, which is rated 16 by pro football focus going into the season, is this a group that's going to do a better job kind of keeping them clean? Well, Russell Wilson gets some of the sacks on his own. They're his own mm-hmm. fault because he runs around, he scrambles outside, and he scribbles outside the lines, holds onto the ball too long. But you take that because you get the big plays on the backside of it. So you don't want to take the wag out of a puppy's tail. This is who Russ is but you don't want him getting hit all the time. It's even as much as the sacks. I don't want him getting hit all the time because he's 33. Now he wants to play for 10 more years. At least I don't need him getting hit. Tom Brady's not getting sacked 40 times a season. I mean, I know they're different quarterbacks, but as he starts to gradually continue to live in the pocket more as he gets older and he scrambles with purpose, but eventually he's not going to be running around. I don't want him getting hit. So the line, it starts Tory with, they need stability and consistency from Garrett Bowles at left tackle. 2020, he was second-team All-Pro, played out of his mind. Uh, He benefited from no crowds and the NFL just basically deciding not to call holding that season. Um, But it wasn't like he had a bunch of egregious calls that weren't getting called either. He got better. Now he's got a new line coach. He's got a new scheme. Even in OTAs, there were some clumsy moments. Like They need to put him there and not worry about him. 
and need him to be a guy. And he is so motivated to block for Russell Wilson. I mean, he loves the guy. And he's always a guy you want in the foxhole, but he's really connected with Russell Wilson. So they need consistency out of bowls. Not even necessarily pro bowler, but he needs to be in the argument as a top 10 left tackle. And he certainly has the talent to do that. Dalton Reisner should be your left guard. He's adapted well to the zone run scheme. He's in a crossroads year. Is he going to come back? Will he get a new contract? Lloyd Cushenberry's played every snap at center the last two years, but he hasn't been great. I mean, he's just played it because, honestly, they haven't had a lot of options and they, their offense wasn't very good. Lloyd is a little smaller. This zone run scheme should suit him better. I think you're going to see the best of Lloyd Cushenberry, and he just needs to be middle of the pack, frankly. Uh, and then right guard should be Quinn Miners, the young kid out of Wisconsin Whitewater, the D3 kid. He is an absolute brute who's just physical in ways that are just jaw-dropping. But he's got to get better in pass protection and on blitzes. And then right tackle, they've had more right tackles than Spinal Taps had drummers. I mean, it's every year. Who's the right tackle? Who's in the last six years? Who's the right tackle? Who's the quarterback? And who's the coordinator and who's the coach? And you wonder why the Broncos have lost. It's pretty simple. When you have no consistency at coach, quarterback, right tackle, and offensive coordinator, gee, we're not very good. Shock. So they've got Billy Turner now. Billy played here as a guard back in the day. He's smart. He's cerebral. He played for the Packers. They need him to be the guy. Just sit him there. Billy knows the offense. Let him do his thing. And if he is the player we saw the last couple of years in Green Bay, their line should be solid. And Graham Glasgow is kind of the X factor there. Could he play center if Christianberry struggles? Could he even play right guard? Uh, he came back. He redid his deal. He hasn't lived up to expectations. He's coming off a horrible leg, broken ankle, and um, cartilage injury. But he could provide depth. Natane Mute, the kid from Fresno State, perhaps could provide depth. And Calvin Anderson has it would be the swing tackle. They're in a better position, I will tell you, than they were a year ago. They have a great quarterback, which allows you as a line typically, and, and I know Russell's sack numbers are high, but it should allow them to be better because they know they're not – like the last few years, Hori, we didn't know the quarterback was going to be like every other week. That's not good for an offensive line. Different cadence, a guy drops in the pocket a little differently. All those things, the nuances of the position, they struggle. Now they know who the quarterback's going to be. They've been out to his house. They've been out. They'll go out there again this July in July. Again, they know. So everything is set up for the line to have a good season, but they got to prove it. I'm not going to just sit here and tell you they're going to do it. They've got to prove it. I don't want to hear about it. I want to see you do it. That's what McVay says. And that's what in baseball they have a saying, don't talk about it, be about it. It's time to be about it. And this line has the talent to be about it. Oh, Awesome. Just one quick, one quick one on the other side of the ball. Uh, how does the team shape up? The defense shape up both against the run and the pass this year, especially the pass in that in that division where there's so many unicorns at quarterback. Yeah, listen. I mean, any other division they're in, you'd be like, "Oh, Broncos are going to win the division." But I mean, I'm not picking against the Chiefs. The, the Chiefs have beaten the Broncos 13 straight times. I mean, I'm over it. And again, I'm just covering it, and you get over because it's a tired storyline. As a journalist, you root for the story. The Chiefs squashing the Broncos has become a very cliche storyline. But Patrick Mahomes is Patrick Mahomes. I do think, again, with all due respect to Chiefs fans, you're going to miss Tyreek Hill more than you think because of the fact it's going to change how – I know the Broncos specifically, it's going to change how they defense Travis Kelsey. Kelsey killed them. They took Hill away for the most part the last two years under Fangio, and Kelsey absolutely kills them. In his career, he's like 16 games – 
1,200 yards and 10 touchdowns. He's like first team all pro against the Broncos every time he plays them. And in part, and I love Kelsey, in part because of Hill. When I talk to players, the Chris Harris's and the people, they're like, we had to account for Hill every play. Now you don't have to do that. So that's a huge deal for their defense. But defensively, two things change with they hired Evero Ijiro. I hope I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I always screw it up. The new defensive coordinator from the Rams. It's the same Fangio scheme with the nuance of they're going to try to pressure the quarterback more. Fangio was very conservative and playing zone, cerebral, read and react, and they were good. They were the old bend but don't break between the 20s. They were really good in the red zone. The problem was when people tell you the Broncos had a great defense because they only they were third in scoring, they didn't have a great defense because they ranked in the bottom third in sacks and takeaways. You can't beat great defense if you don't get sacks and takeaways. And they didn't get sacks and takeaways because their offense stunk. When you don't have leads in the NFL, Jorge, you know this. What do they do? Four-minute offense or quick passes. So run and quick. So Von Miller, out of the game. My best players, Justin Simmons, Kareem Jackson, Pat Sertan, out of the game because they don't even give them a chance to make plays. It's almost like a stall offense. So with the Russell Wilson offense leading, they should get more sacks. They really need Bradley Chubb and Randy Gregg to be Randy Gregory to be healthy. That's the one risk they took in the offseason with Gregory, who's missed more games than he's played, and he has shoulder surgery. What are they? I don't know what to expect from Gregory. He's dynamic when he's on the field, but if so let's say he's going to be in and out of the lineup for whatever reason, they have got to get a big year from Bradley Chubb. And their secondary is their strength with Kareem Jackson safety. Justin Simmons is their best defensive player. Pat Sertan's their second best defensive player. And why are they going to be better on the run, Hori? Because they added DJ Jones from the Niners. Mm. This guy is an elite run stuffer. He gobbles up backs like Pac-Man does dots. He is huge. He occupies blockers. It's going to make their inside linebackers better because the line has to account for somebody who's an elite run stuffer, which they did not have last year. Last year, they got run off the field by the Browns, Raiders, Eagles, Ravens. So their run, their run defense was not good enough. DJ Jones is going to make Draymond Jones better, and they're going to be better on the run. If DJ Jones is healthy, and plays because I had people sources from the, the Niners tell me when they graded out their defense, the Niners, the second best defensive player on that team behind Nick Bosa was DJ Jones and PFF, whatever you think about them, pray football focus. They graded him as one of the best run stuffers in football last year. So they're going to be better stuffing the run and they're going to probably rely more on five and play nickel and dime a little more than they did under Fangio, certainly dime. So their defense, it has a chance to be special because they're going to lead. Uh, and I, I just I'm encouraged by what I've seen. Even in OTAs, the defense was getting winning their share of days against Russell Wilson. This has a chance to be a really good team. What does that mean? I have them going 11 and six with a chance to get hot in the playoffs. I'm not picking them, you know, to win the Super Bowl or anything silly. But they are so much better on paper than a year ago. Again, it's just been six years of absolute just ab, you know failure. And there's no other way to put it. So I'm not going to go over the top with it. But this has a chance to be a really good football team that will contend in the AFC West. And if they don't win the West, they, if anything less than a playoffs would be a huge disappointment. Yeah, and we saw from Cincinnati last year, you just get hot at the right time. You, you just be the last one standing. The AFC is just such a crucible. It's it's incredible. There, I think there's six... 
six great quarterbacks, right? Seven great quarterbacks. You look at the NFC, people ask me, I'm like, of course if I'd stay in the NFC if I was Aaron Rodgers. There's Green Bay, Tampa Bay, and the Rams. Who else? Mm -hmm. AFC, you could argue eight, nine teams could make a run from the Chiefs to the Bills to the Bengals to the Chargers to the Broncos now. I mean, there's like there's just way more great quarterbacks in the AFC right now than the NFC. And if you don't have a great quarterback, as the Broncos learned in the current NFL, you have no chance. Oh, man. Troy, you got me fired up for football. Mi amigo, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I just have one last one on uh, on Mexican food. If you could answer the, the Rocky Mountain Oysters question, but also what are some of your favorites? Because I know Colorado has good Mexican food. I've had it. Yeah, listen, I have never had Rocky Mountain Oysters. They sell them at Coors Field. It's just never been a, a thing of mine. I've, I've eaten some crazy uh, sushi, uh, but I've never eaten Rocky Mountain Oysters. But I grew up in Pueblo, Colorado, and so we have great Mexican food in Pueblo. Uh, to this day, it's still the best Mexican food I've ever had. So in Colorado, and it's I think it's similar in California from some of the places I've been, but in Colorado, they serve green chili that's thick. Like you can eat like a soup or a stew. So the places I go to, you know, it's usually I'm not eating as much meat anymore just because I'm old and I have the diet of like a teenage mutant ninja turtle. So I'm trying to get healthier. But, you know, it, back in the day, I'm eating, you know, chicken enchiladas smothered in hot green chili. Everything I would eat in Mexican food is smothered in hot green chili. I could eat green chili every day as a soup over stuff, over eggs, anything. I love green chili and I could eat Mexican food every day. I love it. But I grew up eating at a place called Nachos in Pueblo, Colorado, and we'd get their like fried corn tortillas with just beef tacos. With they had the greatest hot sauce. And then as I got older, and you know, growing up and getting teenage years, that's when I fell in love with green chili. My dad would make green chili. I just I could eat green chili every day. And we have a couple of places locally, La Mariposa, but Santiago's is probably of the northern Colorado where I live is most is probably the best. And they have hot green chili, which I love. And they have great chips and salsa. But I ate, I'll tell you this, I ate at a Mexican place. And I'm not name dropping because I just happened to be out there for my son's baseball. He plays at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. I was out for the GSAC tournament in Orange County. So I was out in, um, what do you call it? Uh, Laguna Beach. Oh, There's yeah. a Mexican restaurant in Laguna Beach that overlooks the beach there. I, the name's escaping me. It was the best chips and salsa I've ever had. I had like a cheese enchilada thing. The cheese enchilada was whatever, but I had a jalapeno margarita and I have those at the Rio mm -hmm. once in a while in Boulder. Jalapeno. That's my, my over the next month, I'm going to learn how to make a really good jalapeno margarita because the ones they serve at the Rio and Boulder, they're famous for their margaritas. Oh my God, it was delightful. But the chips and salsa at this Laguna Beach Mexican restaurant that overlooks the ocean. Oh my God. Just delightful. But I could eat Mexican food every day. I love Mexican food, as you can tell. Uh. Love it. Love it. Oh, and I love this one. I know we went a little over time, but I, I, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for the time and the insight. I, I let, let's sign off Troy point everybody to where I'm going to, I'm going to put the little banner up one more time, but uh, point everybody to where they could get all the, all the greatest Broncos coverage. Yeah. Jorge, thank you so much. Humbled again to be on here. You can find me on Twitter at Troy rank uh, on Facebook. Same thing at Troy rank. My stuff is on the Denver backslash Broncos. That's where my articles are. Uh, you can, when you go to Twitter, you'll see my, I do what's called like look lives or reports. I do during the season, it's five to six reports a week, like a minute and a half, two minutes that the ones that air on that are on air. I also tweet those out or put those on Facebook and every, every Saturday year round, 
I have my rank and file report. That's like two and a half to three minutes every Saturday, which is a recap of the week or Broncos things I find interesting. So thank you. You can find it again on my Twitter at Troy rank. That's where also you, I put my links to my podcast. I drop two podcasts a week. Usually right now for the next month, it'll be like Wednesday, Friday or Tuesday, Friday. Uh, but there'll be, it's two podcasts year round. I can't thank Broncos country enough for the support they've shown over the last year of my podcast and being on shows like your yours, Jorge only can help. So I'm always, always rooting for folks to do it. It's a grind, but it's a blast. Oh, it is. It is. I mean, uh, and, and by the way, you had me at, uh, at, at both Spinal Tap and Pac-Man references. So thank you. You you, fe- you fed the 80s ch- teenager from me. So I love it. Oh, God. Uh, familia, eso es todo for our show. Thank you so much. Otra vez to our invitado, Troy Rink. I, t- I so agradecido. Fue un gran placer. Just, oh, just thank you so much. And make sure you're going to fantasypoints.com, familia. Put Familia 22, Familia 22, get your 10% off your subscription. Also make sure you're going to, you're. I'm pushing out, all our content at Twitter, on Twitter primarily at Jorge Martin 17, also on Facebook and Instagram at, at Familia FFB and go to FamiliaFFB.com for our original content. Last one for our podcast, our, our, our audio only version, Apple, Google, Spotify, it's Familia FFB. Give us a like and subscribe. Really appreciate it. Otra vez, thank you, Troy. Thank you all for listening. And remember, todos somos familia. Salud.